This is the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast, the most accessible podcast in the business. My name is Matt Wolf and I'll be your host. Our topic for this podcast is accessibility in game design. And with me tonight are two designers who are so colorful, even people with protonopia can see them. And I'm going to uh, let everyone go ahead and Google that. Uh, so first up is Victoria Earl. Hey, Victoria. Hello. And how are you today? Doing good. Very good. And our other designer is the one and only Daniel Solis. Hey, Daniel. Hello, hello. How are you? I am very inaccessible. Thank you. <laughs> Let's hope not. And congratulations uh, on the success of Kodama being uh, delivered to everyone. That was just recent. And it looks like a lot of people are playing it and, and enjoying it. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I got my good. copy in the mail yesterday. It's good. Good. Hey. The action phase did a really good job with it. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear it. So now we're going to move into our first segment, uh, which is what's in the oven. So, Daniel, we'll start with you. What you've been working on lately? Oh, gosh. Everything for Unpub. Uh, <laughs> yeah. all, all of the things. If I had to narrow it down uh, to two things, it would be getting Trickster prepared for the upcoming Kickstarter campaign that's going to be in a few months from Action Phase. Uh, we've been developing two-player and three-player variants for the game, which had normally been designed for like around four and four through six players. Two and three players working really well, so that so so far so good cool. on that front. Other thing that I'm preparing for Unpub uh, specifically for development and and possibly pitching, if anyone's interested, is Curse You Robin Hood, uh, the game where you're trying to get rich in Sherwood Forest, but not so rich that Robin Hood and his thieves will notice your wealth. Awesome. I still haven't played that one. I, I need to at some point. Oh, you haven't? Jeez, come on, man. Uh, it's it's so hard to, to play everyone's designs. There's just so many going on. Uh, I still haven't played uh, Rocky Road Alamode that Josh uh, had signed mm-hmm. with Green Couch Games. So I got to get that one done, too. It's like... Uh, I don't know. We need a, a week weekend long con or something to play all our <laughs> all our stuff. Uh, Victoria, how about you? What are you working on lately? I'm doing great, actually. No one in the group has heard this because I came up with it the night I got home from the prototype day on Saturday. But I got a new design. I haven't actually created the prototype yet, but it's going to be really easy to to make. And it's actually a very Matt Wolf design because the theme is that your photographers trying to get a picture of Bigfoot. All right, I like it. <laughs> You're on a hex grid and Bigfoot moves around. You try to move around to get a, a photo of him. But the thing is that he can see you from a mile away. So if you get into his line of sight, he runs away. And uh, he also runs away if you like get too close to him. And as soon as you take a picture of him, his his ears have evolved to like hear the, the shutter click of a camera from anywhere. So he'll just you know, blast off as soon as you take a picture of him, no matter how bad it is. Are you saying that Bigfoot has sonar? <laughs> <laughs> They're just very good directional hearing, right? Just attuned to the predatory click of a camera. <laughs> kind of like your dog. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, that sounds pretty cool. You're going to try to get that ready for Unpub? Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm going to steal your tiles from Wombat Rescue. And, steal uh, away. I think I need to make one custom die with colors, and that's kind of it. Everything else is just very standard parts. Cool. Last episode, I mentioned that uh, we are going to have a gift card for anyone who comes up with a better name for this uh, segment. 
And so far, we've gotten a couple responses and suggestions. Thanks to Nat and Aaron on Twitter for your suggestions. We're going to let the uh, uh, some more suggestions kind of roll in. And then at some point after Unpub, we'll put a poll up in our guild and see which one uh, people like the best. And whoever suggested it, you will get a gift card to either Cool Stuff Inc. or Miniature Market. And anyone is eligible. So anyone who has an idea, go ahead and tweet at the group's account, uh, which is at GD of NC, or you can post in our guild, and the guild uh, link is in the show notes for the episode. All right, so now we're going to get into our main topic, which is accessibility in game design. Uh, so we're going to go over pretty much all the categories of accessibility and hopefully have lots of good information for you here. Uh, so let's start with the, I guess the underlying question is, why design for accessibility? And Victoria, this was your topic that you wanted to do, so let's start with you. And I, I wanted to preface this, like, why did I put this question down? Um, because it seems clear to me that publishers don't always prioritize it. I own games that I can't play with people because they were not designed with like really basic accessibility uh, ideas and concepts. And so I wanted to go on a little bit about like exactly what happens, especially with multiplayer games, right? The realm I'm in a lot is video games and those are single player and that's one thing. But when you have something like a board game, it's, it's even more important, in my opinion, to make sure everyone can play it. Here's the thing. If you design a game that my friend can't play, then... Not only do you lose that person's sale, you'll probably also lose mine, right? Because I play with a specific group of people. I think a lot of people play board games usually with a specific group of people. I forgot to look up whether they did that or not. Um, but like, if I can't play with someone in my group, I'm going to choose a different game. I'm not going to choose a different person to play with, right? <laughs> so like, you're you're cutting out a lot of customers when you. Uh, fail to account for accessibility and some of the stuff honestly is i don't want to say really easy but conceptually simple to design for the other reason being that i often find a lot of times when you design with an aim to make your game accessible to people with um, disabilities or like specific permanent conditions you'll also get people in temporary situations who like can play your game easier like this is probably not going to happen in a board game but if if it was dark, right, or if, if there wasn't a lot of light, let's say the power went out and I'm playing by candlelight, right? If I can't read your, your dang text because it's 0.8 font and <laughs> you used a script font and it's terrible, then I'm going to be mad at you. <laughs> then, you know, that's not as far-fetched as you might think, though. Because, right. Yeah, I, I've played by cell phone lighting up a board game because the power went out and we were in the middle of like game night and we're like, well, uh, what are we going to do? Let's, we'll just light up the board with a couple cell phones. And we were playing Tigris and Euphrates and, and the, the uh, not the recent reprint, but the, uh, the original. And that was really difficult to play by, you know, lit up by small, you know, cell phone screens. And so, so yeah, I, I don't think, you know, the, <laughs> the lights going out and, and the, having to use candles that's not as as perhaps as as uh, odd as you might think yeah yeah i mean it happens my house now does not lose power every time the wind blows the wrong way but that's not everybody right some people yeah. the power is a little janky where they live and then the uh, the other thing is there's often a spectrum and right, it's not just people with what are, what was that word you said hold on with proto protonopia <laughs> uh, that's that's going to be affected or people with like direct uh, color blindness. It's also going to be people whose vision is kind of fading. You know, maybe they're older, or just maybe they never had good color vision. You know, it happens. There's a lot of medically 
non-significant variations in in the abilities people have. And so you kind of catch them all when you when you make sure to design for people with the most extreme conditions. All right. Anything to add to that, Daniel? Honestly, Victoria said, I said everything I was going to say. The, the real thing that I think publishers may forget is that they can't not design for accessibility because when you're, they're producing any product, any object, there is a level of accessibility that is built into it, whether that extends to certain body types or certain uh, vision impairments. That's a different matter, but, but they're already thinking about accessibility when they lay out any text. It just so happens maybe they're not taking into account the broader, the broader spectrum of of affordances that would be necessary to actually make a mass market product, and so I think that one thing that a lot of publishers just need to understand that this isn't something that that they can escape or or to or ignore because I they may not be thinking about it as such, but they are still working with accessibility regardless of whether they do it well or not. That's that's a good point, and we're we're saying publishers because ultimately the publishers are responsible. But I think it absolutely starts with designers, and um, you know we can you know get the ball rolling, so to speak. And so, and Victoria, I'm just curious: have you tried playing Wombat Rescue with with any of your friends who have vision issues? Uh, no, I have not. Yeah, I'm curious how it held up because I I did a lot of work to make sure that the colors would would be you know still discernible for people with different types of of colorblindness and i'm hopeful that the actual published product then supported that if you get a chance sometime let me know i I would be really curious to know if the final product does hold up you should ask people to tell you on the twitters because i know one person who's colorblind and maybe our listeners would have experience well yeah if, if anyone's listening and you have some type of colorblind issue and you've played wombat rescue which is probably the narrowest of venn diagram we're gonna have uh yeah let me know i, I would i would love to know all right uh so the next question here is when to design for accessibility during prototyping so daniel let's start with you on this one when do you think is the right time uh, you know, it's funny, I had been, just because my background is in graphic design, I tend to think about it way, way early when I'm making my prototypes. But if if that's not your background, I just saw a tweet from Grant Rodiak talking about this, that, that he thinks about color coding and that, and that sort of thing in his prototyping process. What he feels is too early, and I'm not sure what, to what degree of uh, development he considers too early or when he considers it appropriate to start thinking about it. Uh, so taking, taking that uh, caveat in, in place that I work in graphic design every day, it is something that's on my mind from the get-go, that I want to make sure that when I put a prototype down on the table, that playtesters are evaluating the game itself, not any problems they may have uh, they may have had with reading the text or being able to recognize an icon or discern a color. I don't want those things to get in the way of actually testing the game itself. And that's that's why I think about it so early. Hmm. Okay. How about you, Victoria? What, when do you think is the right time? I'll tell you when I did it, which was too late. Um, <laughs> for sweet success. I want, honestly, like I'm going to be honest, the main reason I did it so late is because I didn't feel like making all the eff- going through the effort of finding all the icons for all the ingredients, for all the cards. And, you know, it ended up taking five hours to do so. So I don't know if that was self-fulfilling prophecy or what. (laughs) But, you know, I I waited a long time to make cards that were readable, especially for pattern recognition, because that is the game that you need 
to look at and read. And I kept one of the reasons I knew it was definitely time to do it is I kept getting that as feedback. I kept getting players saying, hey, I think I took it to Unpub Mini. Did I? I think I took it to one Unpub Mini with the old cards, with the text cards. And so many players were like, hey, I can't read your card. It's terrible. Uh, no, that's not what they said. But <laughs> That was the you know, gist so of it. It <laughs> was kind of what they meant, yeah. Um, and so I think you'll, your play testers will definitely let you know when it's past time to do it. I would say the, a good target time is when you're going to put it in front of people in general, right? If you're going to an unpub mini or if you're going to unpub. Any place where you're going to just be play testing with lots of different people, and you don't know what abilities they have or what their limitations are, you, you want to take a look at your game and be like, okay, is someone going to have trouble with this game for something unrelated to the design? Yeah, I know at, at Unpub 5, uh, one of the games I had was Balloon Delivery Service, and I it didn't even occur to me at the time to make it colorblind-friendly. And Eric Handler, who is an awesome guy, he is colorblind, and he sat down to playtest it, and he had a little bit of trouble. He could playtest it uh, because the colorblind issues were uh, fairly limited in that design uh, in, in the components. But I felt terrible. It, it just, you know, because I, I don't have that issue myself, it just didn't even occur to me. And now I, I really try to be cognizant of that. And so hopefully at Unpub 6 this year, uh, all the designs I'm taking will be colorblind friendly. And I'm going to sit Eric down and be like, all right, tell me what's what's wrong here. You know, what what did I miss this time? But yeah, I, I think for, for me, when I, at least these days, when I start thinking about uh, trying to make sure that at least for that they're colorblind friendly, I, I do it when I'm going to make like a quote unquote pretty prototype. And that's something other than like me drawing it out on hand on whiteboards and stuff like that. Once I start like trying to make, um, like a nice board or cards on the computer and print them out. That's the that's the time when I try to make sure it's going to be accessible for, uh, for any kind of vision impairment. That might be too late. I don't know. I don't know if there is a right answer for this question. I can definitely see if you're re- you know really good about this, you know, doing it how Daniel does and just doing it from the get go. At the very least, do it before. Yeah, you're gonna put it in front of people especially at like an unpub mini or the big unpub event. What other kinds of things do we need to be cognizant of for like colorblindness issues? I wanted to actually back up a little because, because we have been talking about chiefly colorblindness, which is like a very important thing to pay attention to because it's related to graphic design. And it's like a really basic issue that a lot of publishers seem to miss. But as far as when to design for accessibility during prototyping, if it's not colorblindness, if it's not related to the graphics, I think it might depend right on, on what the issue is. If it's a dexterity issue, uh, let's say if you have people shuffle your... Okay, here's a good example. If you're lazy, like me, and hate making cards, you might be tempted to make very few cards and just be like, okay, just shuffle them a lot. Uh, that's a terrible idea. Don't do that. Don't be lazy. Uh, because making someone shuffle cards over and over again, right? For someone whose hands don't work good, I hate that a lot. But for anyone, right, that's just really annoying. And it's going to add to the time of the game. It's going gonna, it's gonna to affect the, the playtesting if you have so few cards. So it, I think it does depend a little on like what accessibility target you're aiming for, you know what what kind of thing you're addressing. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Once again, I, I didn't really think about the dexterity, uh, you know, part of that because I generally don't have those issues. But even if you don't have any problems, like with shuffling cards, for example, you're right. It's just super annoying to have to shuffle cards too soon, you know, like constantly. Like group member uh, Graham Russell, he's got po- party politics, which many iterations ago was a smaller deck 
And when you were playing with a large group, you just went through that deck way too fast. You were constantly shuffling. It was really annoying. And but he, you know, he improved the the game and added some cards and and you know changed some some of the effects so you didn't quite use as many cards. And and now it feels like yes, yeah, it's, it's at a good place where you're not constantly, constantly you know, shuffling uh, through that game. Have, have, okay, so here here's another example. Have you tried picking up a card off of a flat table? Like just. Anyone has trouble with that, and if you're, if maybe that's just a personal beef. I just want to complain about that. Just, <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard. Well, like, and I, I think that's a small example that can that can show anybody who, regardless of the, your uh, your spectrum of ability, some some of these things are annoying if you have to do them very frequently, or if your game is entirely about that. Bear that in mind that some of these things may be more difficult than you, than you expect. Just just have a nerf dart ship with the game. So you use the nerf dart to pick up the card off the table. I've actually done that, and it actually works pretty well. The uh, the suction cup nerf darts, that is, not the uh, the blunt tip ones. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're right. I had a design a while ago that was all about shifting cards around on the table. And when you're when you're doing it with sleeves, it's not that hard because those are thick. But once you go to real cards, and then you know, depending on on whether the cards are a little bowed or not, yeah, that can that can be hard to to pick a card off the table. Uh, so what other types of issues do we need to be aware about for, for vision issues, uh, whether it's colorblindness or, or anything uh, similar? As far as vision in general, aside from, color, uh, aside from colorblindness, putting that aside, I think it's important that it, we realize that as the generations of game players grows older, we're all going to face vision issues eventually. Uh, and just look around any gaming table and you're going to see a lot of glasses already. So we're aware of what these issues are. And I think one of the main things that, uh, that, I, that I get a kind of be in my bonnet about is uh, text size and contrast. Text is often too small and put on backgrounds that are too low contrast compared to the text. Or they're so busy and textured that you can't really see the text because they're impairing the um, or they're affecting the actual silhouettes and letter forms in the text itself, making them effectively impossible to read. Like like they're camouflaging the text almost. That's one of those things that I, whenever I would talk to students, when I uh, see initial early typography uh, pra- practices or anything like that, when they're just learning, they they kind of want to throw the whole palette on the canvas and play around with stuff and put all sorts of cool backgrounds and stuff. Or, or for example, if you're laying out a card and you have full col- uh, full uh, card, full bleed art, and you kind of think, well, I don't want to put, I don't want to cover any of that art up. I paid a lot of money for that art. And so I'm going to make a semi-transparent background and then put a text over the semi-transparent background. And in doing so, you've essentially made a very busy background for the text and you still obscure the art, regardless of whether you wanted to show it or not. Those, those little things uh, are, are what I'm aware of and what I always try to like poke uh, designers about whenever I uh, initially see their early prototypes. So is there like a minimum font size that you would not recommend going below? It all depends on context and reading distance. At an intimate reading distance, say a card that you're only going to hold in your hand or like look at a book if you're if you're just look, reading a magazine or a newspaper those font sizes are vastly different based on based on their use cases but a comfortable reading size depending on the typeface because it varies by typeface as well it can be as small as 10 point but it can be as even high as 12 point depending on the way the 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 font is drawn and and designed 
And that's at an intimate reading distance. That's not even taking into account components that need to be read across a table for, from a far distance in center yeah. of the table, like a tile or whatnot. A, a couple points. For the benefit of the listener, every single one of us right now is wearing glasses. So <laughs> Daniel's point about everyone wearing glasses, that's true. And like mine was from, I don't know, I've been wearing them since I was a kid. I don't know about Mine are just yeah. for style. That's <laughs> no, no, that's definitely not true. Yeah, so I mean, vision problems are like extremely common, and and often corrective lenses do like bring you up to twenty twenty. You when you get older, they stop bringing you up to twenty twenty. Like that's <laughs> that's just how it is. Old science can only do so much. So far, I'm so, waiting for stem cells to fix my eyes. You know, <laughs> it's I just have to live that long, and then it'll happen. Ideally, then, you don't want to have to get stem cell treatments to read your cards, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That seems then, like the expensive approach. Uh, <laughs> I would, yeah, that's probably not the smart approach. Yeah. Just ship them with the game. It's fine. Um, <laughs> it's like the memory pack in Donkey Kong 64. So the other point is that Daniel mentioned art. Uh, if you commission art for your game, I don't know what you're doing unless you're kickstarting it yourself. Or your or your Josh Mills. <laughs> or Josh. Yes, Josh did. Well, that made him feel good, right? He did that. And I do think it's important to do things that make you feel good about the design and keep you motivated. But in general, if you're commissioning art to put on your cards, don't. The, uh, <laughs> unless you're kickstarting it, in, in, in which you're a publisher and you got to pay real close attention. And I would also say, like, keeping it simple, keeping your card designs pretty simple. Don't, don't go crazy, right? And that's a really good way to avoid a lot of issues that can happen. Black and white is okay. No one's going to be mad that your prototype isn't fancy enough. Going back to, to how early to do accessibility during prototyping, if your handwriting's really, really, really bad, bribe a friend. Get them chocolate or pizza or beer or whatever and and get them to write it out for you. And I know that's that's not necessarily feasible when you've got like a really good idea and you're sitting at home alone and you've gotta write the cards out. But seriously, don't write if you can't if you're if someone could confuse your handwriting for a prescription, then <laughs> like don't. Um, and how many times have you guys heard someone go, oh, like during a published game, go, oh, give me those cards. I want to see them. I want. I need to read those cards. Like a million times. And that's tricky because those cards are hand cards, but they're also table cards, right? Because And if you can't, this goes to iconography too, right? If you can't get any read on them from a distance, then that's tough during a game. I don't have a good answer for that, actually. I, I can speak to that a little bit from, from some research that I've done with, with CCG production. And, you know, of course, in the case of a, a collectible card game or trading card game, whatever you want to call it, living card game, the cards with text games, um, they... Uh, from what I understand on, on the production side, they're you know they're aware of course that there are issues where you know, have to see what your opponent's card is and read the text, and sometimes you have to evaluate it and linger on it for a little while. But as I understand it, the way they they do their art direction and, and production, they try to they assume that that most of the community that plays those games are going to be ha- are going to have a passing familiarity with what those cards do on an individual basis. To the point where they can use the art as a long-distance signifier of, oh, this card is is that dragon, this card is that elf. And from a distance, you know loosely what that card does. Uh, some elements, I think, uh, you know, you could probably make bigger. Like, you could probably make the attack and defense bigger on those on traditional magic cards. 
if you notice that more recent games will have much larger numbers if they're going to be referred to very often. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's Sometimes you just can't avoid having that situation where you got to look at your, your friend's card just to see what they just played and then go back to them and hopefully they remember, oh yeah, this was in my hand or was it in the table? Speaking of, of attack and defense numbers being bigger, I would say that if you have flavor text, especially if, if any part of your text is flavor text, I would really like you to separate that out from practical text. Right. So if the only way I know what the card's attack is, is if I read the sentence, this card has X attack, then you've failed. What other kind of uh, vision related uh, things should designers be aware of? Don't make your cards ugly. I don't know if I have anything else. <laughs> well, yeah, ugly is, is not synonymous with inaccessible. So I don't know. Don't make them hard to look at. Right? I don't mean <laughs> ugly as in like aesthetically unpleasing. I mean, like my eyes hurt if I look at them. But uh, if there's if there's, tough, one, yeah. if there's one thing that like a fundamental thing, and I've talked about this before, I I may have even talked about it on the podcast before, but the uh, the one of the most basic things to to be kind of visually literate about is silhouette and and the shape of things as a recognizable symbol, whether that is a letter or if it's an icon that you use to represent attack values or the expansion that this card comes from. Knowing how to establish a recognizable shape that is not cluttered or compromised by its background or framing elements so that you can really recognize what that icon is regardless of where you're viewing it from, from uh, from any angle, from any distance, you can recognize that this symbol is clearly this idea from any from any distance. So like if your if your game uses coins and you use a circle, cool. That circle is coins for the rest of that game. Don't make any other concept uh, have an icon that has anything resembling a circle because at at some point the two icons are going to have to be put together or be adjacent to one another on two separate uh, components. Either way, they're going to get confused with one another. So so if you're going to have a circle thing, don't don't make other circle things unless you are making a family of icons which have to be related to one another, in which case you can use a circle as a framing element, but have a, uh, a make that a secondary part of those icons and have the really distinguishing silhouette be something that's that takes up the majority of that of that visual space. There's that gets into kind of real deep inside baseball graphic design stuff, but uh, the the core of it I always I always come back to is that you can recognize Batman, Zorro and Mickey Mouse by their silhouettes. And if you if you change a corner or a curve or interfere with those silhouettes at all, they become an unrecognizable uh, shape. You wouldn't be able to tell them apart. And the core of design and the core of basic accessibility in the long run is keeping those silhouettes as distinct as possible so that uh, they can be recognized. What? Yeah, I had What's that. Zorro's? Is that you're talking about the Z? Yeah, Zoro's uh, like when it, when you see him um, walk into a door, he has that wide brimmed hat. He's got a, like a cape. He's got a, he's got a rapier. Like these these are things that you can recognize when he when he walks into a room. Like okay, that guy's Zoro. Like huh? So that sounds like Three Musketeers to me. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. Well, but say there you go. Like huh. that that is a that is a thing. Perhaps Zoro's uh, silhouette is not as distinct as it could be. Um, and, and but Batman, you know, you know those ears anywhere. Like, yeah. When when his own head is his icon, like his his logo is his head, like <laughs> that's some strong design. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So the next kind of category here is dexterous issues. 
And this doesn't necessarily mean like a dexterity game, but that could be related. Uh, So what types of of dexterity or dexterous issues should uh, designers be aware of? I mean, I put this on the the bullet point list. Uh, It's not as clear cut, I think, as, as a lot of the vision issues. It's not as obvious because people's limitations will be pretty individual, right? I have a ligament disorder that makes me very non-dexterous. I have poor fine motor control. You probably haven't noticed, honestly, but like sometimes if I have to pick up really small pieces, my hand will shake and like I'll actually have a lot of trouble aiming for it. Whereas other people will have arthritis or something else entirely. It's kind of tougher to design for that. We already covered the shuffling cards thing. That's that's one of the, the more dexterity intensive common game design actions. So So let's go back to the small bits there for a second. Is there a size at which it becomes difficult? You know, is there like a like a threshold where under that threshold, it, that's where it becomes difficult, like a centimeter or or bigger? I think for me, it's definitely like below half an inch is and and it depends a lot on context, right? Like um, we were testing those dice for for one of your prototypes on Saturday, and and you guys were testing like how easy was it to pick up stuff. And you found that actually the bigger pieces were harder because you would knock other stuff over, right? Your limitation for movement was because you were trying to do it real fast. Right. Um, so my limitation for movement is because I uh, suck at it. <laughs> right? Like, just imagine, like, if if I just knock stuff over trying to do it normal. And that's what happens, right? And so stuff that's really crowded together, right? Stuff that's really, really tiny. The one, the the cubes that we buy from the EAI, those actually do give me trouble. I do have a little bit of trouble with those. Hmm, okay, because um, those are one centimeter. Those are your standard centimeter cubes. Yeah, okay. centimeters a little bit small. Like if you can scoop them up, right? If you can do another hand motion that isn't like bird peck picking up with a finger and a thumb, then that's a lot easier. On on the topic of being able to manipulate small pieces. Uh, you also one thing a designer can can work on is how precisely do you have to be able to place a particular component onto a surface, whether that whether that designated area is the exact size and shape of the component, or if you have an affordance where you have a, like, a, like a half an inch or even an inch or more. So you don't have to get it right on the dot in order for it to be critical. One, one game that Graham and, uh, Graham and I are working on is uh, a game where you have to place these cubes onto a card, on, onto a grid, and make this kind of uh, old, old style sort of an 8-bit video game sprite picture. And for now, our cubes are exactly the same size as the, each, each cell of the grid that you're placing on, which is going to be tricky if you have any kind of motor, motor control issues. So one thing we have to think about in the future as we go into production or talk to publishers, how much extra space are we going to allow for on, the, on these cards? How big are they going to be? For now, we're working with things as they are with, because we have, that's what we have access to in terms of like printers and, and, and that sort of thing. But it is something that we have in mind and we're, and we're going to address um, yeah. much, like, much earlier than, than final production. Like, this is the thing we got to think about very soon. Yeah. And again, I, it, for me personally, and, and this is the, the tough thing about this is because mostly I can talk about what I can and cannot do. Uh, I don't have the, a body of research saying like what m- most people would have trouble with. 
but um, it de- it's very dependent on context. I've seen people play Pixel Factory, and I think that wouldn't exactly pose a problem for me. I mean, it would in the sense that, you know, picking pe- pieces up and putting them in exact squares would be hard. But the, the way you have the grid layout, you can actually shuffle things around, right? Like you can move things, uh, you can kind of scoot them around the board. So you don't have to just place pieces is in the exact same place. You can kind of put them down and then push them in place, which is a lot easier. I guess, yeah, definitely don't use eight millimeter cubes. (laughs) (laughs) At least one centimeter, they're going to be, you know, probably easier to obtain anyway (laughs) if when you get the... A tub of a thousand cubes. I think the Daniel's point about you know making sure that you don't necessarily you know like how, like how tight you know do the is your board layout or you know how much space do you have around there and and that's that's a really good point. I hadn't really thought about that, but now that I'm thinking about it, there's a lot of euros that do a pretty good job with that. Where like you put a dude you know in a space and the space is not the size of a meeple it's way bigger you know and and so if you don't you don't need a precision target you know unless it's a a, a dexterity game or something and so it's, it seems like in that in that sense there uh, a lot of euros at least try to do that whether it's intentional or not I, I couldn't say so since we're talking about dexterity what about dexterity games themselves uh, is there anything that designers can do or is it just like well sorry since it's a dexterity game and you're not very dexterous I just unfortunately can't play my game. Well, I think the biggest thing they can do is what I'm going to say is going to amount to design a good dexterity game. But more specifically, make a game where even if you're bad at the dexterity part, you don't feel bad, right? I think James did a great job of this with Valley of the Mammoths. I'm not very good at the dexterity part. I Flicking is terrible. He has he has given you the option to, to not flick, but kind of like push really fast, which is really nice for me, right? Again, he, he removed a restriction where people were having, any everyone really was having a little too much trouble with the flicking because flicking is such a big motion and, and it's so unpredictable and so like kind of giving you a little buffer zone and not saying no you have to do it like this that's helpful but also being able to to do the deck management stuff and to to have some strategy in there means that even if you screw up you're not gonna get super punished for it i think i can't remember what his latest iteration has but i know earlier iterations said that if you got your piece off the board you would lose it forever i think it just doesn't count for that round now i believe right yeah right I, and I'm pretty like my memory might be failing me. Sorry, James, if it is. But I, I think it used to be that if if you flicked it off the board, it was gone. Yeah, I think and, so. And I think my feedback at the time was like, that's too punishing. I can't like my fingers screw up. <laughs> please, please don't. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> yeah he, he wanted it, you know, to feel like really bad if you did that. And but he wasn't thinking about like, what if? Yeah. What if you're just bad at, at dexterity games or bad at flicking yeah. and and, you know, a, a, a die going off a table that's easy to do like i could do that and i'm pretty good at flicking games it's just <laughs> you know it just happens so yeah, yeah so he backed off that pretty uh, uh pretty uh quickly Early. i think yeah. yeah um and i guess my favorite dexterity games are the ones where everyone is equally bad at them right so so they're really goofy <laughs> I was ones. Just about um, to say that. yeah 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 um what is it uh like the pharaoh's tomb it's a it's a is it that haba game yes it's a haba game thank you I oh just completely lost that's the a name. gulo gulo yeah 
Gula yeah. Gula. Um, yeah. Drew has a has a copy that's like Pharaoh themed, and right. everyone is terrible at that game, and it's great, right? It's really entertaining <laughs> because like nobody's nobody's that good at picking little spheres out of a, a bowl with a stick in it, trying not to make the stick fall over. <laughs> I wonder if little kids are better at it actually than adults because they have smaller. Because they fingers. have tiny hands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Games where I have where my tiny hands give me advantage definitely uh, improve my mood. Um, and i think the worst ones which again like you're getting to the point where you can't design your way out of this is games where you have a lot of people's hands like in the same space together uh because the weakness of my ligaments means that i I can actually get hurt temporarily but it hurts if someone smacks their hand into mine that hurts and i don't like that so you Uh, would never play jungle speed Probably I don't know what that is, but probably not. Yeah, and it's I just, not for you. Yeah. <laughs> and I saw you guys playing the the speed dice game, and like you would hit each other's hands, and I'm like, oh god, don't make me. <laughs> but those are those are very fun games for a lot of people. I think I think that's the point at which you're like, sorry. One um, of the things that, that I mean, taking Jungle Speed as an example, in, in that game, basically what happens is you have a totem in the middle of the board or middle of the table rather, and everyone's going to try to reach it. Um, when a certain combination of cards are revealed. You grab it, then, you, hey, you got it. If you don't, then bad. In the meantime, you're going to get scars and blood. Uh, <laughs> like, like I, I still have a scar from when my father-in-law went for, went for the totem and just gouged my entire palm. Um, so now that's, that's jungle speed, and that would be a hardcore dexterity game with really you would think no way around it. You couldn't design around that. Until you look at a game like Anomia, where it's effectively the same sort of dueling mechanic, where at, at the combination of, of certain cards being revealed at the same time, two people are going to begin a duel of speed. But in Anomia, it's not a physical speed thing, grabbing a totem. It's that they have to read each other's cards, look at the category that's on, that's on their uh, respective dueling uh, opponent's card, and say a word that fits the category that's on their card um just off, off the top of their head yeah and nomia means anomia the, the word means that it's it's the experience of uh having something on the tip of your tongue and not being able to actually come up with it which is what happens a lot in anomia when you're suddenly uh get suddenly forced to uh come up with a brand name of a detergent or a famous ghost like uh, just off the top of your head you have to do this and really really fast and you still get the same exhilaration and thrill that you would get in jungle speed but with way less opportunity for blood and gouging and gore Uh, (laughs) so there are ways you can get these experiences that i think are so so often connected to the dexterity genre in other ways yeah that's true and i would say that like that doesn't mean you shouldn't design jungle uh speed jungle jungle speed jungle speed that's a weird oh um that doesn't mean you shouldn't make jungle speed right and in fact that it's really easy to filter those out um, yeah. the problem happens when i pick up a normal game that's totally normal and then find out halfway through that mm. i have to pick up itty bitty tiny pieces and like yeah put them mm. down. i'm shaking my hand for the camera it's not a very <laughs> podcast um and then try to put them down it's like and you're that playing does a get claw, claw machine right huh? it's like claw you're playing machine. with a claw machine yeah a little bit and like it does get inherently frustrating to try to do that over and over again because most people don't like i'm i'm of the firm belief that everyone who plays games with me would not notice that and would not see that but i see it and i get really frustrated by it so how about uh like uh holding cards in in uh, in your hand i would say that's more a hand size issue than anything like not not well Hand size is in literal hand size, and also uh, the how many cards you hold in your hand at a time. I get it. I get it. Yeah, <laughs> I made a joke without meaning to. 
So if you have big man hands like I don't know Burke, let's let's pick on it like Matt, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then you know you're going to be able to hold more cards than I am, and it it does get kind of painful to to try to to manage thirteen cards in your hand. <laughs> Triskaidekaphobia, but it's fine, right? Like it's what happens, and it's not—it's really not so bad. But it's—it's it's also going to be like, what is your target age? Do you want kids to be able to play it because their hands are even smaller than the average small person's small hand? Maybe a rule of thumb is that you don't ask anybody to hold a number of cards higher than their age. <laughs> <laughs> That's so a good if, one. If they're ten, they can hold ten cards. If they're five, they can hold five cards. Does that math work out? I don't know, kids. So. It depends. Don't- <laughs> it might be age divided by two or something. Maybe so, yeah. yeah. Half and it depends on the size of the card, right? That is true, uh, yeah. I know a lot of people... I don't know where I got this impression. I got the impression that people don't like mini cards sometimes. Perhaps they're just expensive to produce because they're tiny. No, it's because they're they're hard to hold. They're hard to shuffle. For and, man hands. Yeah, well, perhaps. that's true. Yeah, for right. tiny no, hands, exactly. they're probably great. I love, I love yeah. Takenoko mini cards. They're my favorite. <laughs> Uh, even though you don't hold them in your hand a lot. But uh, the the other thing about um, dexterity issues and dexterity games in, in, in particular is that you want to look at, like, what are you testing for the dexterity and what do you not want to test for the dexterity? And are you making the player do things that require dexterity that, like, aren't really the point? I can't think of a good example right now. I can't. I don't play a lot of dexterity games, to be honest, so... Have you played Rhino Hero? I have played Rhino Hero. And, and are you able to play that? It's fine. Uh, that's one of the games where everyone's equally bad at it, right? So I'm not I'm not the only one always making the tower fall, right? That's that's yeah. the the main danger with dexterity games is if one player is so obviously worse at it than everyone else, and that isn't just disability or arthritis or anything that could be age, right? And that's a kids yeah. game. Just general clumsiness. I've, I've known a lot of clumsy people, I myself included, and yeah. Uh, if if I could use one of my games as an example, um, uh, in Tenpen, I know Matt, Matt, you you like Tenpen quite a bit. In that game, uh, you have a penguin card that is placed on the edge of the table, and you're smacking the edge of the table uh, such that the card slides forward into a into the deck. And whoever is closest to you, you'll be doing this several times uh, over a number of turns. And then once everyone has sort of launched their penguins, wherever the penguins lay, whoever is closest to the deck will get first dibs of a draft uh, of things that come out of the deck. And in one of the things that I, I found when I was designing that early on was that. It's really hard to control a card that's just sliding across a table. Like it's it it is as good as a random die. Like, <laughs> but the fact that people feel a little bit of a visceral connection that they think they can put a little bit of English on it, or they can maybe a- aim it just such a way. It's the illusion of control that I think people are, are attracted to in terms of those kind of dexterity games. When when in truth it. It could be affected by a small damp spot on the table or a crumb that you just don't see. And I'm not sure if that's a useful comparison necessarily, but it is one of those games that kind of everybody is as bad as everybody else because because the outcomes can be so random. Yeah. And I guess the the other main thing is that if you can't make everyone be equally bad, uh, you can try to make losers have fun too. Right, and that's what's uh, that's what's super fun about. I think it's Rhino Hero. You, that's the one where you have the giant copy, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what's so great about Rhino Hero, especially Giant Rhino Hero, is that the the most fun part is when the tower falls, and so it's not so bad if you're bad at it because then the fun part happens more often, right? <laughs> you, you you don't find fun in heckling everyone when they can't do well, it. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, man. So I love Pitch Car, but I am bad at that game. Like, <laughs> super bad. I played that at BGGCon this past year. It was a big, big track and everything. Tons of fun. I came in dead last. It was just, it was bad. But it was fun. It was it was so fun. Partly because I had a really fun group, but also it was just really cool seeing other people make these amazing trick shots or on the off chance that I imagined to catch up even just a little bit. Granted, it's a lot of flicking. Um, and flicking games, you know, you may not have the dexterity or uh, ability to, to do that. And on top of that, leaning over around a table, around the track, bending down, getting just the right angle, contorting your arm in just such a way so that you can get this really difficult shot off. Like, there are degrees of mobility in that game that would make it a hindrance for anybody to play. But even as a spectator sport, so to speak, it can still be pretty fun. Giant Rhino Hero was so fun to watch. I don't think I, I think I played it a little and then I left and then I just watched everyone build the tower like eight feet high. Some guy standing on a chair, putting the card on top. That was amazing, right? And so, so there's definitely ways to enjoy that that doesn't require you to have the dexterity uh, to actually do a good, good job at it. And when we played, it was like four or five in the morning. And so I think everyone's, you know, hand-eye coordination is lacking at that point. And yeah. Yeah. We still got that tower real high, though. <laughs> yeah. It was amazing. I don't want to, like, try to imply in any way that you shouldn't try to design a game where being good at fine motor control or gross motor control will make you feel good. Just, and I think this applies to a lot of games, too. Just make it so that losing still fun. I lose most games. <laughs> Statistically speaking, you play games with four players, you're not going to win most of the time unless you're certain friends of ours who just win all the time because they're really good. So so the game really should be fun when you're losing and you really shouldn't feel upset about it, you know, the average person, I think. I wonder if if dexterity as a genre is closer to something like trivia as a genre or word games as a genre in that there are ways Outside of the game, regardless of, you know, any other factor, you can just be really good at a trivia game because you happen to have a wide library of knowledge of random facts that other people at the table may not have. And so you'll dominate that game. By the same token, you might be some world class athlete who has the uh, the kinesthetic sense to manage to play dancing eggs with such great agility that you'll just trounce everybody else who's playing the game too. And I, I mean, it's not to say you can't enjoy playing a trivia game even if you're bad at trivia, or you can't enjoy Dancing Eggs even if you are not a world-class dancer or something. But uh, I, I wonder if those are if there, there are some parallels in those uh, just broader genres to each other. Yeah, that's a good point. There's Because a lot of the Euro games are kind of their... I was going to say they're kind of their own worlds, but... I would say that that applies to a lot of things like uh, Sweet Success, um, your ability to visually pattern match uh, icons, huge, hugely important. I have had people who, who just check out and it's it's upsetting to me as a designer to see that, but they, they look at it and they can't do it and they just check out and it's not the game for them and there's like nothing I can do, which sucks, right? For me as a designer, I want to be like, no, I want to fix it for you, but can I? I don't know. I haven't been able to. So there's the visual pattern matching. And then I think there's 
systems analysis, right? And I, I think systems analysis is the chief skill of a lot of Euro games where, you know, I present the rules to you. How fast can you break them? How fast can you optimize them? How fast can you min-max it so that you get really good scoring? So one could argue that every game has some kind of outside skill that can influence how well you do. And and that's why I think every game should have oh, should be fun regardless of whether you are winning. All right. We're getting very meta here. That's okay. <laughs> um, any other uh, dexterous issues that we want to talk about? And that I can think of, yeah, we the shuffling and and picking up. Oh, the the last thing I guess is um, again thinking about situational, right? If you're making a bar game, your people, the people playing it, are not going to be as dexterous as the average person because they're going to be at a bar. The the amount of dexterity it takes to just move the places around, assuming you're not making a dexterity game, you're just making a very standard kind of euro game. If you if it takes a lot of dexterity to move pieces around, that might make it fiddly for the average person, right? That might this happens to me a lot where I'm like, oh man, you could do it like this, except that's terrible. Like the physical part of that is just a terrible idea and no one will like doing that. And I, I think I had that problem a lot for sweet success, where I was originally gonna have the, the board made out of cards themselves, so you didn't have to have a board. And I'm like, wait, you're picking cards up off of cards. No. So you have to have a board to be able to get the cards off of them. And people still have trouble getting the cards off of them. Probably in final production, they'll have to be tiles. I'm at this point thinking, well, if they're tiles, then what rules do I have in the game that's not really going to work with that? Right now, I have some people, uh, people sometimes hold the, the ingredient cards in their hands. If they're tiles, that's not going to work super well. What can I do instead? Depend on how many tiles. That's true. Um, right now, it's infinite. Well, yeah, that's that. That might be a problem, but yeah, the if it's just a couple, yeah, or yeah, you know, do you need a Scrabble rack or yeah? That's but it is something to think about. I'm thinking of um, instead of that rule being what it is, giving players wild tokens when they get left out, because that also means that you don't take ingredients out of the game. Pointed out to me regularly, even though it's not actually been a problem yet. People keep saying, well, what happens if I just hoard everything? What happened? Like, can I break the game by doing this? And I'm like, technically, yes. So that's bad. Oh, and it'll also decrease the times you get the order up. Anyway, um, <laughs> got to think about that. Uh, that's a good point, too, that, that as you explore the accessibility and affordances you, you embed into your game, it will lead you into actual, like, more concrete mechanical things that that can lead you to some really interesting insights the only the only thing i could probably add is this is not related to design more on the production side for manufacturers in particular please make your boxes easier to open put put a tab put a cut out a little tab on the top lid so i can so i can very easily just pull those lids apart me just this is my thing maybe but how many people spend like two solid minutes just jiggling the top of the box (laughs) trying Yeah, so I know something that Eagle Griffin has been doing recently. They've been putting little cutouts on the the box lids, and it's awesome. Yes. Oh, I wish more uh, publishers would do that. I know there are some people out there that feel like, oh, it's not aesthetic, so they don't like how it looks. Screw those people because they're wrong. <laughs> you know, just no, because it makes it way easier to take the lid off, and it's a vast improvement. What you do is you get you get a sleeve for those people. You put the sleeve on the box, and if you want it to look nice, you can have a sleeve on it. And then you can deal with that crap. Um, although a sleeve, like if it has both ends open, that's actually really easy to get off. You just push the box. Yeah. In. All right. Next category is language issues. Uh, so what kind of uh, things should designers be aware of for language issues? We covered this actually in the last podcast I was on, ironically. But um, 
because we talked about rules writing, if I recall correctly. A little and bit. And it's, it's basically the same thing. Don't use $10 words. Don't use, don't do that. Uh, what is it? Eighth grade reading level is what you should aim for, I think. Yeah, seventh, eighth grade, somewhere around there. Oh, the other thing, which really applies to more general audience than anything, don't use cute words. Don't use when um and and this came up during prototype day when I pointed out to Drew. Uh, he had uh, I can't even remember what it was. I think it was collect. Connect. Connect. Right. It was connect when you place a cube on the board, and I'm, I'm like, it's a really cool word. It's you know thematically appropriate. I can't remember what it does for the first twenty minutes of the game because it does not say place. Right. If you have an action that can easily be described by an English word that already exists, don't sub in something else. So I'll agree when it comes to common board game terms. Yeah, like, no, like, like draw cards. Just yeah. say draw. Don't yeah. be like you know collect w- widgets fr- from the junk pile and where <laughs> that's actually drawing cards. Yeah. That's stupid. No one's gonna remember that. You know, unless you're a net runner and that's all people play, and then you can <laughs> then you can break the you rules. Just do whatever you want. Yeah, people give a hard time to net runner, but I, let, let me let me mount a defense. Okay, for, for net, net runners, oh, admittedly completely oblique vocabulary. The primary thing that you have to you have to worry about when you're laying out visually words on a on a card or a component is the amount of real estate you have to actually put those words onto that component and how big you can afford to make those words on that component. If you have a common action or a common mechanic, using a keyword may be useful because it can abbreviate a very large elaborate idea that can be certainly detailed in a rule book into something that's much more uh, that's much more concise. So instead of saying the runner's hand if you just say grip that's an easy big bold-faced word you can put onto a card assuming that the players have become familiar with that vocabulary already and in in that sense it's essentially the same thing as learning a whole hieroglyphic system of of icons that are in like race for the galaxy for example it's just that unlike an icon you can actually say the word grip whereas sometimes an icon can be hard to actually visually make a word for necessarily though as a counterpoint the 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 specific example you gave right icons exist that show well i guess if you had to specify the runner's hand instead of the corporation's hand yeah i played that one once okay then then that might be uh, the only way to do it because you can't have an can't necessarily have an icon for runner. That's well, any I, I did have less a, obscure. I ran into the situation when I was when I was de- uh, designing um, early prototypes of Trickster, and the icon system that I used there was that if you have a hand, if or, or something is going into a hand or whatnot, then it's just going to show an icon of a hand. If it's your hand, then that's blue, and blue is you. And whenever I teach the game, I just say blue is you, and for some reason, rhyming is a really great mnemonic device. So blue is you and red is is an opponent. So any opponent. And and basically I just designed the entire game so that I I would very 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 rarely ever have to specify a particular opponent. Red is just any opponent, all of them. The tricky thing was figuring out an icon for for tableau and I settled on a house icon. But really, like that, that's that tough. that's tough, and so that's where keywords can be uh, sometimes more useful because you can actually just say the word tableau. You always recognize tableau. It's big. It starts with a T. It's possibly bold. Never all uppercase. Please don't all uppercase oh, yeah. words. I I did forget forget to mention that I have done some reading on this, and and basically all all uppercase letters. It's it goes back to pattern matching, right? People read by pattern matching. They don't read letter by letter. 
um, unless they're five, which is why five-year-olds read so slowly. If you make letters all uppercase, then that that ruins the pattern matching because you're looking at a rectangle. You're not looking at a, a mountainside anymore. You're just looking at a block, and that that makes it hard. And there's there's situations where that's not that, that big a deal. Um, and where you might want to use uppercase as its own codification, like if it's all uppercase, then it's an action, right? And if those, if there's five words that do that, maybe that's not so bad. But in general, you will want to stick with um, normal case, sentence case, case, yeah, yeah. yeah, or title case if you want to, if you want to set things apart. Yeah, yeah then title case, you'll get out the grammarians and they'll yell at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that's a really good point about all caps. Uh, we actually uh, group member Josh uh, Mills. He, he has that issue where, like, really, really bad, and with uh, words that are all caps. Just you know the way his brain works, he has a lot of difficulty reading that. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a really good call out. What about for people who maybe have English as a second language? Let's assume that you know you're. At this point, you you either cannot or did not iconify your game. Is there anything that you can do for uh, ESL players? Um, I think the eighth grade reading level would cover a lot of that because those are the words they learn first, right? Those are the words you would learn first if you're learning English as a second language. The people I know who have English as a a second language, the only thing that ever trips them up is those $10 words that I'll pull out in conversation because... I talk like an English major. You know, you don't put that in your rules or your cards because it trips them up. And it may... It, <laughs> yeah. It's I don't know tricky. How, it, it makes them... Like, if that were me, I would feel really awkward. And depending on what social group, that can be worsened by people who are not super kind about it or do not understand um, that, you know, the, the player in question has English as a second language. Because, again, many of my friends, they told me, like, English is my second language. And I'm like, really? Because you type better than most people I know with English as a first language. So, like, a lot of people, there's there's definitely a social trend to kind of try to get on people's cases for, for how well they use English, how well they know English. Really? And a little on the internet, for sure. Oh, right? I mean, on the internet, people are just <laughs> jerks, internet. so you can't can't use that as a rubric. <laughs> I can see where at a certain age, even regardless of any, any uh, whether second or first language or anything, nerds get uptight about how other nerds say words or <laughs> pronounce you. things. Yeah. Like I, I, I admit that I get some hairs on my sticking up on my back whenever I hear someone pronounce melee mealy. Like, ooh, that gets on my nerves. And so I I, 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 can, <laughs> or I can see language. Like even it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be a second language even. If you just yeah. see the word that word M E L E E, some people just read it differently and they say it differently, and that can cause some hang ups in actual gameplay. Yeah. Yeah, the the rule of thumb is if someone mispronounces it, don't make fun of them because that means that they read it and they've never heard it pronounced before. Or, or I suppose someone else pronounced it incorrectly and they picked it up from that person. Uh, but yeah, like, like Hermione, I had no idea it was pronounced that way. <laughs> Wait, it's not Hermione. Okay, um, I did not actually know. So yeah, no. So so the the point the the point I'm trying to stumble my way through is that language can be sensitive as a topic, right? And you don't want to make players feel like they should have taken out a dictionary in order to play your game, right? And I think the temptation, especially for people like myself, people who love reading and studying the English language and know a lot of $10 words, is 
Uh, this is a point of contention between myself and Drew, actually. For me, orthogonal is the only correct way to describe the movement that where you can't mm. do diagonal, right? And that's a $10 word. I can't, like, actually use that. I'm going to... Rook style is, like, that's the first I, I heard of that from on Saturday. I'm like, oh, man, I should do that. No, no, do I not. Wish there were, I wish there was an alternative to orthogonal because, yeah. It, oh. And Drew's like, that's not a, that's not a word. Don't yeah. don't say that. <laughs> the, reason, the reason that Drew said that is because a long time ago on Twitter, it was him and Burke and some other people were making up movement based on chess pieces, and rookular was one of the terms. <laughs> And, and oh, it's so like, that's yes, that's not real. No, Can it was not it real. Real? real. So that's why he said Rook style, you know, because that was that was a callback to that conversation. So, no, oh. I mean, yeah, orthogonal. I mean, th- that's a word where you probably still have to define it, you know, and, and even though it's not correct, you have to use majority instead of plurality. And because, you know, people think they know what majority means because it's the common, you know, understanding where Technically, it's a plurality that you should yeah. be using. But if you use plurality, then it would be like, what does that mean? And then you'd have to define it anyway, which I suppose you could do and maybe you know teach people one word that they should be using. <laughs> but but yeah, I, I, I think the, uh, the point of trying to stick to you know, the 7th, 8th grade reading level, that's probably going to be the best way uh, to deal with it. You're not writing an English textbook. <laughs> like you're not writing a dictionary and you and you have to keep that in mind especially in rules writing especially if you're the kind of person who really wants to write textbooks for people to teach them cool words um, don't do that in your board game all right so the next category here is readability issues now we've already talked about this quite a bit one other thing i wanted to throw in here uh, when if you're using numbers on your you know cards or boards or whatever and if you have sixes and nines put a period <laughs> after or a line under uh, I made this mistake on a prototype a while ago, and even though the, there were different colors and there was uh, other elements on the card to show you what the orientation should be, uh, people still were like, wait, is this a six or a nine? So yeah, just just remember a period or an underline. It doesn't matter which, just do one of them. That's going to you know keep the sixes and nines straight. And if you have a, <laughs> a, a one and a seven that look similar, pick another typeface. Yeah. Uh, unless Daniel, unless you know a trick around that. Some people like the the, the crossbar on the seven. Uh, I personally makes that think I think that makes it look like an F. That's backwards F, you crazy yeah. person. But if you're dyslexic, then that can be that can That's still true. look like an F. I um, write my sevens with an F because I can't uh write numbers well. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I write my sevens with a crossbar. I don't write them with an F. That would not work. That would be unique. A different font is probably the better way to go. Yeah. Uh, if, if I could toss out one other option for the sixes and the nines, this may not work for everybody, but I, one of the things I love about one of the, uh, I think it's the classic pairs deck from James Ernest. He just wrote out the word six on, on the six card. And it's, it's a small enough word that you can't just fit that into the roughly the same space as the single numeral and no confusion there. Like yeah. that, that's really clear hmm. oh that's right mark was showing me a die he had that just had all the all the numbers written out and i'm like can you get more of them the answer was no by the way but like <laughs> numerals um, so there's there's ap style rules for numerals and when to use them um and yeah i don't, I don't know if that's good for a board game though i mean those those rules where you gotta spell it out and if it's under you know 10 or whatever and eh, I, i'm not so sure about that but it is important to have a style guide that you stick to when you write yes. your rules. Agreed. So, 
if you have quantities of a resource and you're always using numerals in those cases, stick with that. If you're writing out the how many spaces you can move or how many cards you can hold or how much how many slots you have in your tableau with written out English words, then that's you stick with that. Especially yeah. if any of those things are going to be in the same sentence, it's easy for numerals to get jumbled up with each other and you just kind of end up looking like uh, what does that say? Yeah, and. I guess the the general rule of thumb I would use if I didn't know AP style and have it hammered into my brain is uh, numerals for when you have to add things Mm -hmm. for for things that involve math in the game for the player and then uh, written out words for anything where it's just like a cap or a limit of some sort, just Ah. just a thing. So if you have like uh, this thing does X damage plus one for every blah you have thing. Yeah. Because then you can, again, I love pattern matching. I love being able to just look at a page and know what's happening there. So you can you can just kind of scan and be like, okay, if, if I'm scanning, like, oh, man, how much damage does this do again? Scan, and there, and there you go. And then I guess with tables and stuff, if you have a <laughs> number of players and how many X you give each player, because a lot of yeah. games will, will have those adjustments. I tend to like those being numerals. I don't know about you guys. But, again, that's just, like, scan for it, find it. And then you can you can say, okay, so there's five players, so we're doing this. Yeah, so at, at my day job, um, years ago, we had uh, our standards and styles committee. I'm, I'm a writer, uh, so I deal with this all the time. But we came to the conclusion that we are always going to use numerals and not going to write the words out ever. And mm. the reason why, well, there actually there was two reasons. One was so that made it just simpler. It simplified the whole when do I use, when do I write out the number? When do I use the, the numerals? And so anything you can do to make a writer's job simpler is better because uh, there's always so much writing to do in, in tech writing. And the other uh, reason was because, as, as Victoria, you just said, that it's easier to scan for a, a numeral uh, mm-hmm. in text. And it, it, it just you know pops out. And usually when we're using numbers in documentation, it's because it's important. You know, as you're like put in this port number or, you know, put in this uh, for the medication you know, limit or whatever uh, the, the thing might be. So in rulebook, most likely if you're using a number, it's because it's important. And even if it's if it's something like, you know, choose one player to be the start player. OK, I mean, just, you know, that number one, that's fine. Uh, let it jump out and, and let let people see that. So I, I use numerals exclusively. Um, I would love if anyone who's listening to this has any kind of literature that says that's a bad idea to do. Because <laughs> what we looked at years ago said, no, that was, that was probably the, the best thing to do. So let me ask you this. In a situation where a rule would state, like, choose a card or pick a resource, would you ever use the A? Would you always default to a 1? I would always default to a uh, more specificity. Yeah, mm-hmm. so, so 1. I would never say A card. And these days I would say like one card from <laughs> specifically yeah. where you're getting it from. Even if there's only one draw pile, I would still say, you know, you know, draw one card from the draw pile or, or you know, whatever the exact language would be. Because I, I, I can't believe some ways that players interpret rules. Um, <laughs> now- well, and rules writing, uh, well, rules reading, sorry, and card reading are very distracted forms of reading. If you're writing a book or an Mm. article, even, although the article, you know, they'll have a video playing on the other monitor because that's what people do. But if you're writing a book, you can pretty much expect people to read the book and not have people talk to them and not be in a giant crowd of noise and not and not and not. Yeah, 
reinforcing over and over again um, is what you want to do because people will miss stuff, right? They'll be in the middle of a sentence and someone will ask a question and they'll look up and answer it and they'll go back and they'll jump down half a line. That happens. Or the, they have a whole table of people waiting for them to find the one rule and so they're really feeling the, feeling the spotlight <laughs> while they're feeling the pressure. <laughs> yeah. 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 A competitive reading comprehension. Is... <laughs> I'm going to make a new game out of that. That would oh, be no. the most hated game ever. <laughs> Except by English majors, right? I, I keep saying that a lot because I am one. Uh, I was going to say, what do you have against English majors? Man. <laughs> well, you know, I, again, I, I always default to really complex $10 words. And so that's the thing I have to catch myself doing. I, I have to look at the rules and be like, that's that's dumb. There's no reason to use that fancy word and use a, a better sentence that's more simple <laughs> xkcd's uh thing explainer being a like a, a cool example of, of that he's writing textbooks apparently so, yeah. yeah if you want an extreme example of this um there are two games that come to mind one is the is uh, the crossroads system in dead of winter which forces you to read aloud a, a fairly sizable block of text for for the, the player that's active right now who has just done a thing. So you have to read, read aloud this whole thing, and sometimes that player has to make a decision or the entire group has to make a decision. But you're the one who's reading this aloud, and that text has to be easily understood visually just at, on, in terms of having the actual marks on the card, but also in terms of language, that, that when you're reading these things aloud... There, there are pros, and pros can be sometimes florid, but you have to make sure that it's still readable for most people to understand and, and, and actually enunciate. Anything else for readability issues that we want to talk about? Uh, the other thing, uh, as far as language goes, uh, the other example I wanted to point out was uh, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. That is, uh, that's a game that has these newspapers that are actually part of the box, and you actually have to read through the newspaper to find these clues uh, that are part of the whatever case you're working on at the time. Now they could have set they could have set these newspapers to be like actual newspapers, which are often very tiny text. But uh, because they knew that a lot of times people are going to be playing playing these casually, this is a fun thing. This is not something where the where the editor is breathing down your neck trying to get you to cut as many words as possible so you can fit in one more line so you can fit in an advertisement there like this. This is not the same situation. It's supposed to emulate that, uh, that, that medium. So they consciously made that text a little bit easier to read than a normal newspaper. They still made it look like a newspaper, still certainly on newsprint, sort of, sort of like a substrate. But they, they made affordances to, uh, to the casual audience. Yeah. All right. And something we, we kind of touched on earlier that we didn't really go into a lot, and I just want to emphasize it again, is, is uh, try and, and figure out like where your card's going to be. I guess Daniel did cover that a little bit. For me, there's you you covered uh, like reading distance for for mm-hmm. the hands. There's also table distance, and then there's where everyone's kind of looking at it, and then there's opponent mm-hmm. distance where it's as far away as possible. So like just try and look at those and like make the important parts bigger. Yeah, I I wonder why you know no publisher has or at least no game that I've seen where you have cards that have somewhat significant amount of text at the bottom that it's going to be on the table and you need to read it. Why is it not on both sides, top and bottom, oriented, you know, 180 degrees the other way, so that anyone across the table can also read that? Is it just is it just because it's ugly and that's why people don't want to do it? And then there, you wouldn't have enough art on there. It's never made any sense to me. And another game that has that problem is Impulse uh, by uh, Asmati Games. That's a Carl Chuddick game where you have lots of text that is land, in a landscape. 
and there's no real art on that on those cards. It's just uh, a space background. There's no reason that they couldn't have just you know duplicated the text and flipped it 180 degrees, uh, and you know so people on the other side of the table can still read it. And those cards are intended to be on the table, so you mm. can because you need to you move your ships around because it's like a sort of like a card based 4x game. Yeah, that that is always really uh, driven me crazy about games like that. Codenames does it. Co- yeah, Codenames is great, and that's because there's no real art, you know, on those cards. There's just a, you know, a little bit of a, I guess it's like a note uh, pa- paper background, and yeah, and that's and that does them both ways. And boy, there, there's no way you could have that game without that. You know, there's just it would make it so difficult for uh, for people to, to to play it, you know, or at least for I guess for the uh, the spy masters anyway, because mm-hmm. uh, they would probably be the ones that would see all the words upside down if they didn't uh, if they didn't do that. Yeah, and this actually harkens back to the dexterity thing too, because possibly what you're expected to do is reach across the table and turn the card around, um, mm-hmm. and it's not dexterity so much as how short I am and how T Rex like my arms are. <laughs> um, but that's difficult. You see me be like, oh, no, uh, just trying to reach across the table and do something with pieces, and this is less easy to address. But like, if your game cannot take up giant amounts of table space. <laughs> It would be nice. It would, or if, or alternatively, if things can easily be done by other players. If I can communicate, "Hey, Drew, do this thing for me," right. then that's that's just as good as as me not having to reach across. That's fine. Um, but if I can't like easily verbally communicate, like I need to take this action, can you do this? And I can't easily reach across because the game is huge. That's kind of it's kind of a pain. Yeah. It's kind of an annoyance. The, the the banker role of a board game is, I think, is is as old as board games it's, uh, themselves. Like this, the, that that is also just something that I think we're if if there's certain elements like private information, I can't show you this card, or uh, or I if if you can't reach the deck and you have to draw a card. I can give you a card from the top of the deck. I just got to be very careful. I don't peek at it or reveal it or show it in the in the passing of that card, and that's uh, that, that's a thing you got to work around. Yeah. All right. Uh, are there any other uh, issues in it for accessibility that we want to talk about? <sighs> Gosh, I'm sure there's a lot of other stuff that that we're. If there's one thing I th- uh, I think that we, we're all dis- we've all discovered in the process of working with accessibility is that we all have areas where we're just not aware. Like we're not cognizant of some other some other problem or or range of ability that we're just not aware of, and I think probably the one thing that you just got to always be aware of is that you're not going to be aware of everything. Yeah. You that you can't Listen take everything. Play yeah, right? play so, so yeah, and and this is less easy for board games. With a video game, you can you can go online and find a, a disabled gamers group and be like, hey, mm. uh, can you tell me what parts of my games aren't accessible they, that don't work for you? With a board game, that unless you're at the print and play stage and you have a lot of very uh, willing participants, like that's, that's <laughs> a little harder. But getting your game out in front of people is going to be the easiest way to find out that, hey, this small child is having trouble with this component of the game because I did not design it with small children in mind. And listen to them. When they tell you, hey, this is hard, uh, obviously note that down and be like, okay, that might be an accessibility issue that I need to address. Yeah, uh, one tip that I have for designers in this wonderful age of smartphones, you can get colorblind apps for your phone that you can mm-hmm. look through and actually get a good approximation of what someone with some type of vision impairment uh, will will see the prototype on the table. Uh, one that I use is called Colorblind Vision, and it 
does all kinds of different types of colorblindness, like green weakness, red weakness, blue weakness, which I didn't even know was a thing oh, until yeah. uh, until I saw this app. It's all uh, kinds of very interesting colorblindness. Yeah, yeah. So if you yourself are not colorblind and you don't know anyone that is colorblind, or if you only know like one person and they only have one type of colorblindness, apps like that are really, really helpful. And um, that's for iOS. I'm sure there are ones out there for Android. Uh, there, in fact, there are probably other colorblind apps for iOS as well. But colorblind vision has really come in handy uh, for me when I've been working on prototypes and trying to make sure that they are as vision accessible as I can make them. Speaking of which, um, I don't think we actually said this out loud, but the, the general way to address colorblindness is through icons, right? In addition to colors, don't rely just on colors. Double encoding. Double encoding. Yeah. Except there's one place that that kind of fails, and that's player pieces, right? Most games don't have double encoded player pieces, and it would be a little difficult to to do so and so that's that's a case where the colorblindness app will really help is really help you select the color of your player pieces so that people can actually distinguish between the different colors right yeah unless you're lucky enough where your player piece can have like pad printing on it so it have yeah. you know a pattern printed on it yeah it's um that's a good the rule point. Of, the rule of thumb is that if you have red don't don't have green, green. And if you have green, don't do red. Yeah. Um, the uh, and the that's the most common color blindness. The second most color uh, common color blindness is is uh, distinguishing blue and yellow. So if you have blue, don't do yellow unless that yellow is very very bright and is that if you were looking at it in black and white, you could easily tell this very dark blue from this very bright yellow. That's the one case where you can probably get get by just okay. So so if you're picking colors for four players. And you can pick any four colors. What would you pick to make sure you're covered? The pandemic colors. Uh, Matt Leacock, uh, he talks about this in a, le- in a lecture he did a while back, that uh, they they picked the colors of the cubes in pandemic to be specifically colorblind friendly. So I think it's purple, yellow, black, and red. Uh, the, those four colors were perhaps not the most aesthetically pleasing, depending on the type of game you're making, but... No matter what, even though they're all cubes, you definitely know can tell what what those are from a distance. And I would say definitely neutral uh, is a great like wood color. It's just a great mm. color that a lot of games just don't include because it's textured. It's textured for free unless you're using plastic, which I suppose a lot of places do. But it has you know that little subtle texture to it, and that will help. It might help people. Uh, it's a color I like, to be honest. Like I usually pick it if someone else picks green. So yeah, uh, and then black. You know, obviously those are like very different values. I don't know if I would combine white and neutral though. That those are tricky. It, as, if, if the neutral has a very distinct texture, then you can get by with it. But again, it's something at a glance. You got to be able to to see. Oh, you know, um, the uh, the cubes in Water uh, Lords of Waterdeep, I think, follow a similar pattern. They're, they're black, white, purple, and, and orange. Yeah. So again, no overlap between red and green, and no overlap between blue and yellow. There, you can always tell those apart from each other, and they tie pretty well into the theme of the game too, with the yeah. cleric being in white robes the robes being in black yeah it ties in pretty well yeah and the original game comes with it's just cubes but we know someone who has really cool meeples for them if if the game could have included that that would have been awesome because they would have been different shapes as well that's probably a little expensive though (laughs) production that's some that's for the publisher to worry about (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm sure they couldn't hit whatever price point they wanted to and have you know custom laser cut meeples at the quantities (laughs) that they needed to do it yeah yeah all right, very good. Uh, there's one. Uh, there's one resource I wanted to share, though. Okay. Um, uh, that uh, aside from apps and, and those tools and everything, 
there is uh, a, a writer that I know uh, named Elsa Henry, and she's legally blind, uh, but she's also an active game player, and she plays video games and tabletop games a lot. And so getting her perspective is really, really valuable. And she has a series of blog posts called Blind Lady Versus, and she'll, be ta- and she'll talk about whatever video games that she's playing and, you know, Blind Lady Versus video game or Blind Lady Versus whatever video games um, are not and, designed to be blind friendly <laughs> well yeah and so she she talks about that some of them are better than others and she yeah. kind of uh, she just gives her perspective on it and so i can share a link with that in the show notes and uh yeah really good stuff people with publisher experience do publishers care if you've given thought to accessibility does that help uh, i don't have enough experience to know it's it's never come up it just came into my head, like, do publishers actually, like, is that an advantage for pitching? Is is that you've thought about your design a little extra? I don't know. I don't know. Has that come up for you, Daniel? Um, when I pitch to a publisher and they happen to have color blindness issues or I happen to be pitching in a low-lit area, which often happens at a convention, you, may, you never know where you're going to have to pitch a game, I will I, – I have heard comments that they appreciate that my prototype – was easy to recognize, that they can distinguish pieces from one another, that they can distinguish icons from one another, that that small effort. It doesn't take much, but that small effort was done even at this stage. And it, I can't say necessarily that it won me a contract necessarily, but it certainly didn't hurt. And if there's any, if there's any little nudge that it takes to finally finally close that deal, I mean, it makes financial sense certainly to, to, to keep accessibility in mind. Hmm. All right. Yeah, that was a good question to wrap up the discussion with. Hopefully there was a lot of good information uh, for the listeners. And I think that just basically the more thought that designers can give to this, the the better. It's definitely something that I know I was guilty of not paying attention to previously, but now uh, I I definitely make sure that I will. So now we're going to go into our news segment. Uh, Not too much news today. First one is... A whole bunch of us, including Victoria and Daniel, will be at Unpub 6 in Baltimore, Maryland on April 8th through the 10th. Hopefully we see lots and lots of listeners there. Please uh, feel free to say hi to any of us. We're all very friendly, except for Josh Mills. He looks like a hobo. And uh, But yeah, we would love to talk with you and uh, have you come out and uh, just say hi or you know, at, maybe uh, help playtest our games and try to break them and, and make them better. You can identify us by our shirts. Yes, uh, that's right. We, we're going to have fun shirts. Well, I don't know if they're fun, but we're going to have uh, shirts uh, that are all, all matching. And so you know, we'll, we'll look like our own gang, uh, essentially. <laughs> and the other piece of news, we mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, but it's worth mentioning again, is that Kodama has uh, been sent out to backers, at least in the U.S. I, I don't know whether International has gotten them yet. Yeah, it's awesome to see. They, it, it's a really nice production. And so hopefully if you're listening and if you haven't gotten to play Kodama yet, uh, yeah, get it to the table. It's lots of fun. Time for some contact info. Daniel, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Daniel Solis. All right. And Victoria, where can people interact with you? Like last time on the Twitters at VM Earl. That's M as in Mike, because I'm learning the NATO alphabet now. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Good thing we didn't talk about verbal accessibility. Be, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> and my Twitter handle is uh, at Matt Wolf with an E on the end of Wolf. 
And uh, it's actually the same on BGG if you want to contact me through uh, Board Game Geek as well. And if you have enjoyed this episode, please join our guild on Board Game Geek. If you go to podcast.gdofnc.com, that is going to redirect you over to our guild. Uh, Subscribe and please join in on the conversation and look for a poll on new names for the uh, What's in the Oven segment at some point in the near future. And as we mentioned earlier, we do have a group Twitter account that you can follow at GD of NC, which of course stands for Game Designers of North Carolina. And uh, feel free to subscribe to the podcast. You can use iTunes, Stitcher, or the RSS feed that is provided by our podcast host, Buzzsprout. And that is going to do it for this episode of the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast. Remember to check if that dress is white or gold or blue and black. And we'll see you next time.